Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 where, is where we're going to be this evening. And uh, as you are turning there, let's all just, um, I want us to read this out loud together. The answer to a Babylonian experience is a name and a journey of increasing enjoyment and trust in the Lord. Say that, let's say this again. The answer to a Babylonian experience is a name and a journey of increasing enjoyment and trust in the Lord. We have moved as a culture from Christendom, the Christendom of the 80s and the 90s, to Babylon, essentially, is what we're living in today. When I grew up, Christianity was culturally dominant. Almost everybody I knew went to church. Most people were familiar with the Bible, or at least the narrative of the Bible. And uh, currently, that has completely changed. We've moved from this majority to this despised minority. And uh, this isn't a bad thing. In fact, the entire Bible... I would argue, is written for people who are having a Babylon experience. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Look down at your Bibles. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone, bitumen for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. I want to do a mini-series for the next two weeks, this week and next week, about something that's been on my mind. And this two-week mini-series is called The Answer for Babylon. The Answer for Babylon. If you were to ask a first-century Jew, somebody living during the time of Jesus, why is the world so messed up? What is wrong with this world? Why is it the way that it is? They would have a three-part answer. 
The first part would be probably what we would all say, which is there was a fall. Genesis chapter 3. Humans decided that they would take the decision between good and evil into their own hands. They wouldn't trust God's voice. Instead, they listened to a serpent's voice. They used their senses. It was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. And they followed their own path, thus becoming gods. They would also say, that was a problem. But the other problem was the table of nations. In Genesis chapter 10, God gives the nations over to other lesser gods. The sons of God is what they're called in uh, the book of Genesis. And if you're like, um, I'm sorry, what? We did a series on this on our, in our spiritual warfare series. Go back, listen to the first message. I unpack the entire spiritual worldview that the Bible gives us. But the third thing that they would have said, if you had asked them, why is the world so messed up? They would have said, Babel. Babel. That's why the world is so messed up. And we're like, Babel? I mean, this seems kind of like an innocuous story, right? It's kind of like, what's the, what's the big deal? The, the, the people who had the construction project, that's what's wrong with the world? You know? It's like, what, what do you mean? Well, Babel matters because the problem with Babel is the problem with every human in every culture. See, notice where Babel is. Look down at your Bibles, verse 2. It says this, As people moved eastward, now if you know, if you know Genesis, you know that that's where Adam and Eve went from the garden. It's, it's getting further away from God's intended design for humans. As they moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar. Where's Shinar? Where is that? Well, flip to the left in your Bible to Genesis chapter 10. We actually find out where it is. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. They're listing out the table of nations. These are the people who were given over to these other gods. And here's what it says in verse 8. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Everybody, extend your hands towards Jake. This is what he desires, a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said... Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It was a saying back then. We don't really have it anymore. Verse 10 says this. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalnei in Shinar. Babel is Babylon. Babel is Babylon. And Babylon, if you're a Jew, Babylon is the worst of the worst. They're the worst nation to ever exist. They are those terrorists who took our family members from our land to make them slaves in another land called Babylon, that plain of Shinar. Babylon is not just a singular location. It also becomes this symbol of the problem with all nations, the problem with all nations that are not led by Yahweh. It becomes this symbol of what's wrong with the earthly city. In fact, in Revelation chapter 17, Babylon is embodied as the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Pretty bad title. Who also gets drunk on the blood of God's holy people. You're like, hmm. Yeah, that doesn't sound too pleasant. In fact, in her final judgment, the judgment of the earthly city of Babylon, here's what we read. She, Babylon, has become a dwelling for demons. That's pretty rough. And a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries for all the nations. 
The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. When you read about the judgment of Babylon in the book of Revelation, you are really reading about the judgment of all nations. Because here's the point. Babylon is every nation. Because all nations have the propensity to become the capital. Hunger Games, anybody? Okay, we're going to go there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the Hunger Games, it was my wife who pointed this out to me initially, so she gets all the credit, although she's not here tonight. Just tell her. Alex gave you the credit. In the Hunger Games, the capital was the place where needs were so met the, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs was so full that people began to contort and color themselves in attempts to self-actualize. Sound familiar? It's the place where vice is used as a means for human progress. So the poor suffer. The righteous are punished. God is forgotten and demons are worshipped. Babylon is the capital. And dare I say, every nation has the propensity to become the capital it's the ultimate symbol of human pride and utopianism. It's the city where humans rule instead of God. Let us make a tower to the heavens. We'll, we'll really show God that we're pretty impressive. And every nation on the face of the earth is touched by these Babylon ways. Now maybe you're like, okay, that seems so intense. What makes this story so bad though? Like, what's so wrong with Babel? Well, remember, after the flood... There's the flood in Genesis 9. After the flood, God repeats the Edenic mandate. The same mandate that Adam and Eve received, he gives to Noah and his family. Here it is. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Where have we heard that before? Right? But instead, Noah's descendants, they go to one place, that plain of Shinar, Babylon. They go to Babel and they build a ziggurat. You're like, what's a ziggurat? This is what they called this tower. Here's a, a painting from Peter Bruegel uh, from 1563, what it might have looked like, although we don't know. Um, but this is, their, this is their attempt at constructing this massive, massive structure. And you just think about how big the structure is. One of those ships, you can imagine how big a, a seafaring ship was, could easily fit into the, you know, any of those little archways. So this is just an incredible, incredible building project. And, and, and you have to ask yourself the question to really get down to why this building is such a problem. Why are they building it? What is the purpose behind building it? Look down your Bibles, chapter 11, verse 4. It said, then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, first clue, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. What is their aim? They have two aims. One, they want to reach to the heavens. God's plan was heaven on earth. Their plan was, we'll just go to heaven. Second, second problem is they wanted to make a name for themselves. What's the whole purpose of this great structure? It's going to be impressive. People are going to talk about it. People are going to be amazed about it. In fact, maybe the gods will even be amazed by what we have done. The ziggurat was constructed in order to locate a deity. We're going to the heavens and bring the deity down. In other words, humans set the terms in this city. It's witchcraft. We're going, to we're going to, through material, manipulate the spiritual world. Their reasoning was this. We want a God, but not just any kind of God from the heavens. We want a God that will make us known, that will make our name renowned. 
Verse 4 again. Come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, to the gods, that we may make a name for ourselves. Now, here's what's wild. And this, this, I, the first time I heard this, this credit goes to Tim Mackey. But th- this is just so mind-blowing. The word name here in Hebrew is Shem. Remember that. Write it down. Make a note of it. They need a Shem to be known. We'll get back to that in just a moment. So to recap, instead of a garden that's designed by God for humans to come live with God, there's a garden city designed by humans for God to come to. Their terms. So that humans collectively can make a name. And when you you see that, make a name, you need to think this. So that humans can create purpose for themselves apart from God. Meaning for themselves apart from God. And what is the the definitive nature of this project? Here's what it becomes. It becomes confusion. It becomes Babel. And isn't that what most nations have become? A lot of confusion. A lot of Babel. See, all attempts to produce meaning, to produce a Shem on your own or by earth's strengths and tools will end in confusion. All pursuits of the earthly city, of status or comfort or safety, will only confuse more than they free. This is the lesson of utopianism in this passage. This is the principle of Babel. And here's the thing, and here's my main point tonight. The Abraham story comes right after this. I think it's on purpose. I would go so far as to say that Abraham's story is the answer to Babel. It is the answer to a Babylon experience. And his story is going to be our inspiration for the next two weeks. Now, we don't have time to read his whole story, but I just want to look at the first encounter that Abraham has with Yahweh. Look up at the screen. This is what happens. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. In other words, get uncomfortable. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. Oh, isn't that interesting? What did all those people want? A name. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. They're not going to just be impressed by your building. They're going to get blessed by you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Next slide. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring will I give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So get this. The answer to the corrupt confusion of the earthly city is a family of faith. A family of people who move into the unknown with Yahweh rather than develop their own plan. The answer to Babel, the answer to Babylon, is a family of faith that follows Yahweh into discomfort and into the unknown rather than developing their own name, creating their own meaning, trying to get their own pleasure out of this life. And here's what I want to say over the next two weeks why faith? Why family? Because faith reconnects you to the Logos, the divine ordering wisdom of God, not confusion, the divine ordering wisdom of his voice. And the governmental structure of family is God's answer to the capital. We're going to get to that next week. 
Together, these are the answer to Babel. So tonight, I want to talk about this first aspect of God's answer to Babel, that every human who meets Yahweh at some point must leave the tent of comfort, must leave their Babel project for the great adventure of trusting him. Every single one of you. This, this Abraham thing, this wasn't just Abraham's thing, this is going to become your thing. So here's what I want to talk about tonight. What is the nature of this journey? What, is, what, what can you expect of this journey? What is this going to look like? And first I want to say that this is an, an adventure of trust. This is an adventure of trust. I, as, I, as I'm getting older, and I'm only, I'm 31, but as I'm getting older, I'm beginning to see that all of life is about growing in trust in God. It is all about trust. All of life is about growing in trust in God. When, when reflecting on, on Abraham, the author of Hebrews uh, says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is the lifestyle that pleases God. This is the lifestyle of relationship with God because here's, what, here, here's why. It allows for God to bless you and then give you a name instead of you trying to get one on your own. It isn't, the, the call of God for Abraham isn't, hey, sit here, build a life, get a name, expand your hu- human pursuits to the heavens, and, you know, pray to me every now and then. No, it's follow me. We're going somewhere. You can't stay still. We're actually going to go somewhere. We're going to do something. You have a mission in your life. And the risk is this, and maybe you already feel it, you don't know where he's going to take you. You don't know. You don't know what he's going to ask you to do. You know, I used to have a friend of mine who, would, he, his prayer was always this, whenever, wherever, with whoever, doing whatever. And I'm like, that's a scary prayer. But you know what? That's the attitude of Abraham. Are you a child of Abraham? Galatians 4 would say you are. So yeah, that's our attitude. Whatever, wherever, with whoever, whenever. I said it differently the second time, so you're just going to have to, it's a bunch of whens and whats. See, this is a journey. Walking with God, walking with Yahweh, this is what, every, I mean, we're getting, this is down to the basics. This is what life is about. It's about this tandem walking with him. Where, what are you doing? Where are you going? What are you saying? There's no formulas in this kind of relationship. We don't make some kind of witch's brew of different types of prayers and actions and in order to get the desired result we want from relationship with God in this life. That's not what we do. That's witchcraft. Instead, we aim for relationship. If you want a life that pleases God, there are, very, there are two very basic things that will make your relationship good. One, he's a real person. He won't be manipulated. You can't lie to him. You can't toy with him. He's God. And, and, that he rewards people who seek him. In other words, if you aim your whole life at him, if you follow him, even if you don't know where you're going, even if you don't know what your life's gonna look like, you don't know if you'll get the house or the spouse. You don't know if you'll get that career or that job. You don't know what, what kind of money you're gonna make or what car you're gonna drive. You don't know about any of it, but if you aim at him, he rewards you. I, I, I think of that promise of Jesus. What does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom, all these things will be added. You focus on all the things, you don't get the kingdom. You focus on the kingdom, you get, both the, you get the king, you get the kingdom, and he also adds cherries on top. I, I, I don't pretend to know how this works. I really don't. I've walked with the Lord since I was 17, and I have experienced this firsthand. It feels like uh, unexpectedly getting paid a day's wage when you only deserve to get paid for a couple hours. That's how it feels. 
It feels like coming across a worthless, cheap piece of land and finding treasure on it. That's what this feels like. The aim of this sort of relationship is to move us beyond what's plausible. See, I, I tend to have faith, I have faith, but just, I have faith for things that I have plausibility structures for. Me, meaning that, like, I can trust God for things I can see happening. Like, I, like if God were to come to me and, and speak to me or somebody were to give me a prophetic word, one day you'll be a professor. Okay, there's a plausibility structure for that. I gotta do a little bit more school, maybe make some connections, hopefully get hired at a university or something like that. I can see that I could maybe be a professor someday. Okay, God, I have faith for it. But if God is like, I am going to start a revival in Newburgh that spreads to the rest of the nation and changes this entire world, I'm like, I don't have a plausibility structure for that. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not sure how that's gonna happen. Oh, it looks like I'm gonna have to do what Abraham did and rely on faith. I'm gonna have to actually grow in trust. See, Yahweh won't let you live with just plausibility structures. He's the God of the implausible. <laughs> See, what will happen when you, when you trust God, when you initially trust him, he said, okay, I'm gonna leave the tent. I'm gonna trust you. And this is hard. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna trust you is that he's gonna give you an audacious promise about your life. For Abraham and Sarah, it was this. You're gonna have kids at 100. It was so implausible. It was so unbelievable. There was no plausibility structure for this taking place that Sarah laughed. And God's like, you laughed. And she's like, no, I didn't. He's like, but you did laugh. <laughs> and God liked her laugh so much, he decided to identify with it, and he named her child Laughter. Just because you think it's implausible, just because you think it's impossible, it's okay. God's okay with that. He's just looking for people that will laugh with him. He's looking for people to be like, that is so crazy. I don't know if that could ever happen. That's unbelievable. But he's the God of the laugh. He's the God of the impossible. He's the God of that is so implausible. How could that ever happen? And this trust, this implausibility of his voice, our, our belief in what he says is the first answer to Babylon. It solves Babel. It orders. So you would think, like, believing in the implausible, that's going to be confusing. Oh, no, no, there's nothing more clear. There's nothing more clear than, than leaning on what he said. Secondly, the nature of this faith journey with God is that you get a name rather than needing to create a name. You get one, you're given one, rather than going out and creating one. One of the most awesome, and I told you, remember that word Shem, one of the most awesome ninja moves of God and the author of Genesis is this. Remember the people of Babel, they ultimately wanted a Shem. They ultimately wanted a name. Now who is Abraham? Who is he? Where did he come from? Does he just show up? Well, if you, if you were to trace back Abraham's lineage, you would find out that he comes from one of Noah's sons. What is the name of the son who Abraham comes from? Shem. See, Abraham's a part of the name. He's a part of purpose. He's a part of identity. He's a part of the family that doesn't need to work for identity, but the family that's been given identity because their God is Yahweh. All who are Abraham's children, those of us in this room, either by faith or by blood, are those who do not need to work for identity because we already have one. We already have a Shem. We already have a name. Uh, Freud said this. He said that the ultimate pursuit for every human is pleasure. 
That's the ultimate pursuit. All humans are driven by is pleasure. That's all they're driven by. But there was another uh, Jewish psychologist in a concentration camp in the 1940s named Viktor Frankl, who he found that those who only had pleasure to live for didn't make it through the concentration camp. It was those who had meaning and purpose in life that could actually, that, that, that made it through the concentration camp. And he said, this is the core desire of all people. Man's search for meaning. Man wants a name. Humans want meaning. And so here's my estimation about Babel and identity. Next slide. Without God, people lack meaning. You don't have God, you don't have a name. Without meaning, they work to create meaning on their own. When you work to create meaning on your own, you will turn to pleasure, which eats you alive, or the approval or accolades of others, which will also eat you alive. This is why you look out in the culture and like, everybody's just spinning themselves out of control, constantly reaching for, this is my identity, that will be my identity, maybe this is my identity, this should be my identity. Why? We want a name. It's Babel. It's Babel. So often what we do is we use our life journey to build a name for ourselves. What we have done, where we have been, who we associate with, all to get noteworthy or important, uh, to be noteworthy or to be important, to build ourselves a name. But God wants to take you on a journey, not for a name, but from a name, so that he develops in you purpose that actually lasts into eternity. You know, there's this passage, I, I was talking to Bria about this the other day, because I had never, I'd read it like a, a thousand times, but I'd just never seen it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe, or chapter 2, um, Paul says this, he says, there will be a judgment for believers. Like if I were to ask you, like, will believers, people who are in Christ, are they gonna be judged? Most of us would be like, ah, no, not like, no, we're in, right? We're in Christ. Not so fast. First Corinthians chapter two says, your life's work is going to be judged and those, and it will be revealed, what matters will be revealed through fire. There will be some who built with wood and straw, and when the fire of judgment comes, it will burn all of what they've made. But there will be others who they built with costly stones, and it will last. Make no mistake, it's not a salvation issue, but it is this issue. If you work for a name in this life, you will find that you have built things that do not last into eternity. If you live from a name, knowing what God thinks about you, knowing what it means to be in Christ, you will end up investing in things that are made from costly stones, things that actually last, things that actually matter. Not what you wore or who you knew or what degree you got, any of those things. Who cares? Who were you? What kind of eternal things did you put in stone? God wants to develop in you a name that lasts forever. In Revelation, when Babylon is being judged by Jesus, it's this amazing moment. You know, you're, you're reading throughout, you know, Revelation 17, 18, 19, you're like, man, Babylon is so bad. The nations are so wayward. And just all the things that they did. And then all of a sudden, the white knight shows up. All of a sudden, it's the return of the king. And here's what happens. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose writer is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Notice this. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Now, 
I've read this before, and I didn't really think anything of it until I read this. The same phrase is also repeated earlier in Revelation chapter 2 when referring to us. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I bet that's pretty good. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Notice this. Known only to the one who receives it. What is, it, what is it with names that only the people who get them know? What is that? Dare I say, it's identity that no one can mess with. It's a meaning so deep that it can't be removed. No, my, my, uh, you know, my brother and his wife are um, going to have a baby soon. And they were talking, yeah, yeah, shout out to Mitch and Kai. Way to go. Uh, yeah. And they were t- we were talking the other, uh, last night about names for the ba- Can I share the, the name? Is that- no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I don't know it. I don't know it. Um, and my brother said something. He said, he said, yeah, we don't want to share the name that we're thinking of because next thing you know, somebody's like, oh, I knew somebody named that name. I hated them. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, great. Well, you know, what are we? So we're just going to, when the baby shows up, this is the name. You can't mess with it. You can't touch it. It's just the name. This is what God is interested in doing. He's interested in giving you an identity that has eternal worth and value, not something that you constructed. Whatever you construct in this life, you must maintain. Whatever he gives you, he will maintain. It's a name nobody else knows. It's that knowing God. Oh, he really knows me. He really approves of me. He's really spoken this over me. It's something so sensitive, I'm not even gonna share it with other people. Lastly, the nature of this faith journey is that you make progress through delight. You make progress on this journey through delight. When there's nothing to prove, there's no worth to establish, there's no name to try to get, you move along this faith journey through delight. That's how you make progress. See, I I think a lot of us Christians, because we've been shaped by the goal-oriented nature of the West, we live our discipleship journey through the lens of what am I producing? What am I doing for God? How am I doing for God, right? How am I growing? And Jesus talked about these things. You know, he had the parable of the talents where he said, you know, essentially, you should invest whatever God has given you. Totally, I agree. He also gave us this, this metaphor of the branch and the vine, that, that, that when you're connected to God and his voice specifically, you'll naturally produce fruit in your life. So the Christian life, it's not that, that we won't make progress. No, we're gonna make progress. The question is, where does it come from? Where does the progress come from? And the refrain of the new covenant is that we make progress on this journey through enjoyment. Why is he building all these altars? Why is he always, you know, you read the story of Abraham, he's always stops, he stopped here and he built an altar. Why? It's the ancient form of encounter. It's the ancient form of meeting and hearing from God. And just like the Israelites coming out of Egypt, our faith journey stops when he stops and goes when he goes. Stops when he stops and goes where he goes. So here's the deal. We make progress by simply delighting in him because then when when we delight in him, when we're really looking at him, we'll know when he's stopped and we'll know when he's moving. He's the one who brings about the fruit. He's the one who brings about the progress. We're gonna produce things with God, but the production isn't the focus. when, When production is the focus, what is that? That's Babel's ways. That's Egypt's ways, Right? All week long, I've had this as I've been driving around, running errands, just doing things this week. I've had this phrase in my mind that the greatest and most radical thing I can do is enjoy God. The greatest and most radical thing I can do with my life is enjoy God. 
Everything comes from delighting in him. Why? You're like, why? Because it's the, op- it's the opposite action of the sweat of Babel. I already have a name. <laughs> I already know you approve of me, so my life comes down to delighting and moving when you're moving and stopping when you're stopping. So here's where I want to end part one of the answer to Babel. What is your life about? When you really think about your life, what are you about? What are you building? If I were to just ask you over coffee, what are you building? Maybe in our language we'd say, what are you working on? The sin of Babel is trying to make life what you want it to be. Trying to achieve some kind of incredible existence. One with meaning and purpose and accolades. One where even the gods will applaud. But the reality that hopefully many of us have learned or will learn is that life can't be contorted into your image. We're tempted in a culture like ours with so much wealth and so much cleanliness to think that we can really make life what we want it to be. We can be gods. But there should be a holy realization that humans banding together will not make the world what it's supposed to be. Christians are not utopian. We're not. And this should throw us in dependence upon God who is the one who wants a faith journey with you for your blessing and the blessing of the, of the entire earth. I've been, I, I feel like I've been asked by God recently this very simple question. What do you really want from relationship with me? What do you really want? And, and I've had to get so honest because I, I just am like, I'm not playing games with him. I believe he exists. I believe he rewards those who seek him. So I'm like, what do I really want? Honestly, if I were to list the things that I really want, I'm not sure that those are the same goals that Jesus has for me. Has Babylon given me her values? (laughs) Have I subtly imbibed the value system of the capital, the rat race for accolades, the security of wealth? I think so. So I simply want to ask you this question tonight. What are you building and hasn't been submitted to relationship? What are you building with your life? Are your goals the same goals that Jesus has for you? And has it been submitted to Jesus? If you are children of Abraham, you're gonna leave what is comfortable for the great faith adventure and you will end up blessing the, blessing the world, staying connected to his voice. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.